Welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. I'm your host, Libertarian Tony. Well, if this is your first time listening to this show, well, thank you very much. And if you are a repeat listener, well, then I also want to say thank you for coming back and listening to each and every show. Please don't forget to visit my website when you get a chance, libertyonfire.org, where you can get the podcast directly over the internet and links to support pages for the show to help keep the lights on and for some of the products that I'm going to recommend who I happen to be an affiliate marketer for. So if you want to support the show and you're interested in some of the products that I'm helping to promote, then go to my website and either make a donation on the Patreon page, which of course will also be in the show notes, or check out some of the products I'm advertising and see what you think. But remember to click on it through my link at my website or through the show notes. If you are a social media person, well then you can also check me out on Twitter at LOF Podcast. So that's L-O-F Podcast. And please don't forget to give me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever medium you're using to download and listen to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. It's been a while, probably about a week, since I've done a podcast for you. And I know you've all been itching to hear what I have to say about what's going on in the world. Um, well, I think last time I spoke about the virus and Creepy Joe a little bit. And, I mean, how can you not talk about the virus? I mean, it's just, it's every day, all day, and that's all the media wants to talk about is the virus and then what Trump said, and then, you know, how Trump got things wrong. Okay, so we'll, we'll touch on some of that for just a little bit. Okay, but I, I want to plant a few ideas in your head, and kind of, I'm going to be all over the place in the beginning, and then the show will probably take a, a direction later on towards uh, the whole issue of states' rights. I want to talk about that. And, um, yeah, so first, I want to say the only way you can lock down billions of people against their natural state of freedom and freedom of movement is with their consent. There aren't enough cops or military to pull this off on this sort of scale. And consent is carefully cultivated by controlling the information we are given. But what if we are given the wrong information? And what if the truth is out there, but you choose to listen to the government officials anyway for some reason? Is this not some form of voluntary ignorance? Well, of course it is. But how much of a benefit of the doubt do you have to give some of these people? And I, I don't want to keep picking on this guy, uh, Anthony Fauci, but, yeah, I mean, you kind of have to look at some of the things he was saying in January and February and then how his story changed. And, you know, this is one of Trump's top advisors. Okay, so in January and February, he was saying basically there's nothing to worry about, don't need to shut down government, keep traveling. He even said you can keep going on cruise ships. I mean, he was really way off compared to what his story had, I guess, morphed into in March. And in March, he wanted to shut it all down. You got to stay in your house. Uh, no more handshaking ever. I mean, he literally said that we probably never should ever shake hands ever again, despite, I mean, people have been doing that for thousands of years. 
now all of a sudden this coronavirus is here and we can't ever shake hands again. Anyway, um, you know, I mean, his idea of flattening the curve was everybody believed in the beginning was it was there in order to prevent the medical system from, from being overrun with cases, right? And not having enough ventilators for everybody. Okay, so I can understand that. But now, after the death rates, you know, the percentage of the increase in the death rates has significantly come down, right, over the past couple of weeks, this story should be changing. You know, he should be saying the curve has been flattened, and now we need to get back to work. And he's very reluctant to say that. Okay, so his models and the people he was listening to, they were talking about like over a million deaths. And then there was a revised model that said something about 240,000 deaths. And then it was revised again to about 60,000 deaths. So, I mean, right now we're approaching 58, 59,000 deaths. But as you probably have heard as well, I mean, some of these deaths are being kind of cooked a little bit. You know, their um, their death certificates are being altered or in some cases just kind of quasi-fabricated. So, you know, if you got into a car accident and you happen to test positive for uh, the coronavirus, somehow COVID-19 would end up on your death certificate. But you died from the injuries from the car accident, right? Or did you? Well, is there some sort of reason why maybe these numbers are being inflated? People have talked about in the, uh, in the news that hospitals and medical systems get paid more money if they have to put someone on a ventilator. They get paid more if they have more coronavirus uh, diagnoses. So could there be some sort of monetary uh, stimulus going on? Could there be you know, an incentive for us to increase the number of deaths we've seen in the hospitals and the number of cases. I mean, that's something to consider. And you have other people in the news, like, again, I mentioned this guy, I think, once before, Zeke Emanuel, talked about shutting down everything for 18 months until we have a vaccine. I, I was looking things up. I don't know if we've ever had a successful coronavirus vaccine, like, ever. Okay, so that this sort of virus tends to mutate a lot. So what does that mean? Well, that means if you make a vaccine today, well, then in a couple of days or years or weeks or whatever you want to pick, pick the time frame, the vaccine becomes useless. And you got to keep making new ones and try to predict what the new strain is going to be. I mean, that's basically what we do with the flu. That's why the, the flu vaccine isn't 100% and why you have to get it every year. I mean... Who knows how much the flu vaccine helps? Some estimates say 30% effective, 50, 60%. I mean, nobody really knows, okay? They can't know. They make guesses on the type of flu strains that are going to hit our country, and then they make vaccines and push that vaccine in order to try to, to blunt it a little bit, okay? But it's all, it's all guesswork. And it is, yes, somewhat educated guesswork, but it's still all guesswork. But I want to get back to this whole herd immunity uh, idea, right? The, the only thing that's really going to help is this whole idea of enough people getting the virus and having your own body deal with it, make antibodies to it, 
And now you have antibodies to bits and pieces of the virus that if you end up coming to contact with it again, well, then your body can fight it off quickly, right? So the rapid transmission through the population is probably the quickest route to herd immunity and defeating the virus on its own terms. And with most respiratory diseases, the only thing that stops the disease is herd immunity. So supposedly you need about 80% of the people to have had contact with the virus, and the majority of them won't even be recognized that they were infected, which means they'll have very, very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all, especially if they're children, right? So it's very important, actually, to keep the schools open and the kids mingling and spread the virus so this herd immunity can get out there as fast as possible. But what did we do, right? I mean, schools across the country, I think, are closed. They're certainly closed in California. So that's not going to help. So when you flatten this infection curve by doing this social distancing, you not only delay the life-saving spread of herd immunity, but you also flatten in this kind of stupid fashion the everybody's economic lives and the entire wealth of the society, right? By shutting everything down and not having any economic transactions, or I should say economic intercourse, as Joe Biden would put it. So some other things that have popped in, up in the news I mean, YouTube and social media are cracking down on anything that's anti-WHO or anything anti the conventional opinion about the virus. I mean, YouTube just took down a video by two California doctors challenging the rhetoric of the government lockdown. Okay, so they went out and they did their own study. They did a bunch of testing and found that a much larger portion of Californians are likely infected or actually had the disease and were asymptomatic than what's being reported. And so when you make that number the new denominator, the death rate is minuscule. We're talking less than the regular influenza virus. Okay, and YouTube didn't like that. YouTube is considering this somehow harmful information and taking down that video. So what, what are these YouTube leadership individuals know more about the virus than these doctors know. I mean, they're just doing it to gain favor with, the, with certain people in government, aren't they? Facebook is also cracking down on people protesting. So, yeah, I guess if you want to organize a protest and you have lots of friends on Facebook, that could be a good way to do it. But if Facebook catches you doing that, they're going to shut down your, your little page. There really is something nefarious going on in the background here. And I, I mentioned this in one of my old older podcasts. I mean, is this some sort of government test run for martial law? Like, let's see how miserable we can make all the people before they revolt. And then we'll use that sort of data to incrementally start taking away more and more of their rights. That's something you should probably consider. So anyway, I guess, you know, this, this curve to me is flattened and the number of deaths are being inflated for one reason or another. And the more we test, we're going to have, we're going to find that a lot more people got the virus and were completely asymptomatic. Now, from the beginning, I wasn't worried. I only wear a mask because I can't even go to into a store without a mask. And I'm the one that does all the food shopping. So 
yeah, I wear a mask partly because of that and then partly because it makes other people feel more comfortable, okay? So I don't wear it outside. I only wear it if I have to go into a store and at the hospital where they make me wear the mask. So basically, again, I'm going to say this. I think most of us, the younger population people, the, the ones that are not at risk, I don't have any sort of other comorbidities going on. And if you are at risk, then this advice does not apply to you, right? If you're in the older population and you have some underlying medical conditions, you probably should social distance and kind of keep yourself scarce from society until the herd immunity is out there and effective. But again, that's been pushed off now because of this overzealous lockdown or shutdowns by our government. Anyway, yeah, I think, again, most of us need to actually get the disease, have our bodies fight it off, and then this herd immunity can then prevent it from being spread to the at-risk people. Okay, next, I mean, it's pretty clear that governments overreacted to the virus. And as some governments are starting to open things up, other politicians are doubling down on their shutdown dictates. Why would they do that? I mean, is this because they can't admit that they were wrong? Maybe because if they do, then this is somehow jeopardizing their re-election? It gives their opponent something to, to jump on? So, you know, for example, if you were not in favor of a lockdown and a couple people in your state died, which they probably, I mean, they maybe would have anyway, right? Well, then you can use that against your opponent in the next upcoming election. I guess, I think some of these politicians are thinking that way, right? So can you not see that there are political motivations going on in the background behind all this? I mean, does that surprise you? I mean, your politicians have lied to you for years. I mean, they've lied to you uh, over going to war with countries in particular. I mean, just look at the one of the latest examples was the whole Iraq war and the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that was a, a complete lie. And how many thousands of Americans died during that war? People are, I mean, people are still dying, right? We're still there. We haven't left. And how many millions of people did we kill and displace throughout the Middle East? So is it so hard to imagine that you have people in your government lying to you about war that they wouldn't lie to you about the virus somehow or give you either part of the information or the wrong information? Or they can pretend later that, oh, things changed. Our models have changed, and that's why we, we did what we did and when we did it. I mean, I think we've heard this how many times in the past? Okay, there's another story floating around in the news that I kind of wanted to talk about, and this was the whole idea that Trump said that you should uh, inject yourself with a disinfectant or something like that, which is just completely ludicrous. I mean, you have to look at the complete clip of the video to see exactly what he said, and in the context of what he said, uh, or when he was saying it, right? So he was talking to uh, one of his advisors, Dr. Bricks, and you can imagine what happens in the background before Trump comes out and gives these big press briefings, right? He's getting all sorts of data from uh, doctors and experts and people in biotech and the things they're doing, uh, possible treatments for you know, the coronavirus. And he's, he wants to come out and tell people about it and discuss it. 
And this way, if you're in the media and you have questions about things, well then, yeah, I mean, yeah, some of it is to, I guess, add to his uh, ego that, oh yeah, I know about these things and they're going, they're going on, but it's also to deliver information to the people. And so, yeah, Trump did say something about using UV light to treat the virus in your body, and he also said something about injecting some sort of disinfectant. But he didn't tell people to go home and drink Clorox or inject it in your veins. I mean, he's talking about treatments that people are talking to him about in the background of things that they're working on. Okay, so for example, there's a company called AYTU Bioscience, and they just signed a contract with uh, Cedar sinai Medical System for a UV light probe that they basically stick down your throat and they emit this, it emits this uh, UV light in order to kill off uh, viruses and bacteria. I mean, this is a real thing. We, people have been using UV light to disinfect hospitals and operating rooms and uh, equipment, surgical equipment, for years. I mean, I don't know how many years, probably 30 or 40 years of people, we've been doing this. So this is, this is not something new, but this is a new application of this old technology that works. And so, if you, I mean, you can go to their website, AYTU, uh, that's the stock ticker anyway, so I don't know if you want to buy the stock in the company, but you can go to their website and you can watch the video and it shows, I think it's like a two-minute video of a, a probe going down through an endotracheal tube into your, let's say, your lower trachea and perhaps into some of your larger airways and just emitting light to kill off some of the pathogens. Well, I mean, Trump didn't make that up. This is a real thing that they're trying. Okay, so yeah, if there's some sort of disinfectant, not Clorox, right, if there's some some other sort of thing that they can inject into your bloodstream to kill the virus, I mean, makes sense for companies to work on that, right? Because whichever company comes up with the right thing that's going to help kill off the virus, well, they're going to become filthy rich, okay? So yeah, the profit motive is a great incentive to come up with a cure, okay? So when you see the, the corporate media talking about Trump telling people it's okay to drink Clorox, I mean, they're just lying, okay? And if you are out there drinking Clorox and you're trying to inject it in your body, well, then you're an idiot. And you should probably be removed from the gene pool. And we'll all be better off for this, right? Society will be less dumb if you are removed from the gene pool. Well, I have a few commercials for you guys. I'm an affiliate marketer for several different companies, which I do recommend if you're interested in such products. And you have my word that I'm only going to promote stuff that I actually use and that I actually think is a great value. So I want to tell you a little bit about Captivate FM. I use Captivate FM as my podcast hosting platform, and it's probably the best podcast hosting platform there is. Captivate is said to be the apple of podcast hosting, and the value is certainly undeniable. And you can get seven free days just for trying it out. I host my podcast through Captivate, which is the world's only growth-oriented podcast host, and you can too. Next up is the McClanahan Academy. So this is at McClanahanAcademy.com, and that's M-C-C-L-A-N-A-H-A-N. And a little bit about Brian McClanahan, who created this academy. He's an author of six books and a renowned historian. 
He got his PhD in history at the University of South Carolina. He has written numerous articles for many websites and magazines. He has nine courses for sale right now on his website covering pre- and post-Civil War American history. And he's a fantastic historian and will give it to you straight. And the next product I want you to check out is called Liberty Classroom. And you can go to libertyclassroom.com to take a look. And you can get the history and economics they didn't teach you in school. Several fantastic historians and economists have courses on this site, which you can play over the internet or through a phone app on such topics as philosophy, American history, Western civilization, the American presidents, and the interesting connection between science fiction and liberty. You can also get courses on history of economic thought, current economic thought, and remember, this is the true history you didn't get in school without the political correctness that we all love to hate. And please remember, if you're going to try out any of these products, I only get credit if you click on one of them through either my website or through the show notes on my podcast. Okay, so one of the last things I want to talk about on this podcast is this whole idea of states' rights. What the hell are states' rights? Well, when the country was founded, okay, and the Constitution was put in place, you had these 13 colonies, they got together, and they voted basically to create the United States, right? They voted to create the federal government or the general government because they were all individual countries before this happened, okay? They were all sovereign entities. And so in the past couple of weeks, you had Gavin Newsom out there talking about uh, states' rights and that he wanted to use like the purchasing power of California as as a nation state to acquire hospital supplies that the federal government wasn't providing to him. Okay, so yeah, I mean, that's a good thing. I mean, if he does he really believe in states' rights? I mean, probably not. I mean, if he, if he was president of the United States, he certainly wouldn't. But it's, you know, it's politically expedient for him to say it now. Okay, so yeah, I want to get go a, a little bit more in depth into this whole states' rights thing. And just as a little bit of a background, your rights don't come from government, okay? You are born with these rights. So the government can't just take them away without some sort of due process. Government should really present some sort of very compelling reason if they want to infringe on your rights. Okay, and I think one of the best ways of kind of understanding this whole idea of states' rights and the meaning of the Constitution is to find out what those who approved it had to say. And for that, I think it's best to look at the state ratifying conventions where the Constitution was discussed and debated and clarified before the delegates voted on it, okay? Now, there are essays out there. Uh, you have the whole Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which provide a good intellectual argument in favor of the Constitution or against it and I mean, but it was in the conventions, right, in the state conventions, where the supporters of the Constitution had to confront the specific concerns of the skeptics. And I want to say it was unmistakably clear that what they were doing, they were, these states were getting together to set up a limited government with only certain specific powers delegated to it and powers that could be taken back if desired. It was 100% understood by the states 
that local concerns would all be left to the state legislatures. And there were three critical facts uh, about this Constitution that would be repeated throughout these conventions, okay, in particular the Virginia Ratifying Convention. It, it was that delegating specific powers to the federal government and no more, the powers de delegated to the federal government were not general, but specific. And the new government's powers were mainly limited to handling external affairs and the internal issues and the powers to deal with them were, the, were to be left to the states. And again, I want to say this because it's really important. It was understood that the federal government's powers would come from the states. They would not come out of thin air, nor was the federal government a sovereign entity. It was a national government using powers delegated to it by the states. And if the feds had a power, then it had to be specifically stated. Okay, I want to read something from one of the, I guess, one of the more famous founding fathers, George Mason. So he said, I hope that a government may be framed, which may suit us, by drawing a line between the general and state governments and prevent that dangerous clashing of interest and power, which must, as it now stands, terminate in the destruction of one or the other. When we come to the judiciary, we shall be more convinced that this government will terminate in the annihilation of the state governments. The question then will be whether a consolidated government can preserve the freedom and secure the rights of the people. And in response to this, James Madison, you probably know who he is, he said that the general limitation of the federal powers and the general watchfulness of the states will be a sufficient guard against this new federal government. Okay, so the phrase general watchfulness of the states implied that the states have the ultimate authority over the federal government. The powers that the federal government exercises are only on loan from the states, and it would be a duty of the watchful states to ensure that the new government did not go beyond its delegated authority. So again, this, this is the whole concept of nullification, right? That if a state doesn't like something the federal government is doing, okay, then they could just nullify it and decide not to follow those, whatever, those, those laws it dictates from the general government. And there, there is some wording in the Constitution that has allowed this small uh, federal government when it was created over 200 years ago to become as big and bloated as it is today, okay? And, and one of those phrases is, is the necessary and proper clause. And, and this, there was some pushback. There was big-time pushback over that sort of wording in the Constitution over, you know, when they were talking about it 220 years ago, whenever it was. The whole idea of the necessary and proper clause was that it said that the general government could do these enumerated things, right? It was these only specific powers that were given to it by the states, and they could do what they needed to do that was necessary and proper to carry out those activities. And that was it. Okay, so James Madison uh, talked about this, and this is a quote from him. He said, the powers of the federal government are enumerated. It can only operate in certain cases, 
It has legislative powers on defined and limited objects beyond which it cannot extend its jurisdiction. And during the ratifying convention, other people chimed in, and one of the persons said that the federal government has certain defined powers, and the powers that were not delegated to those people in the federal government were retained by the people. Okay, this is the whole idea of the Tenth Amendment, right? The Tenth Amendment basically says, all right, the federal government can do these things that we list in the Constitution, and that's it. And everything else is left to the states or the people in the states. So this document, this Constitution, was created as unambiguous and unchanging outside of the amendment process. Okay? There are, however, a couple of misconceptions. Okay, misconception number one is that unless a right is specifically stated, then it doesn't exist. Okay? Misconception number two is that if the federal government is not expressly prohibited from doing something, then it has the authority to do so. Okay, none of these things are true. The understanding by everybody at the time was that the general government could only do what was written down and everything else was left to the states. But still, some people worried, right? They worried that the general government, somehow it would... There would be a usurpation of power, and they refused to sign the Constitution unless a Bill of Rights was added. And that's how you got the first ten amendments of the Constitution, right? It was in order to try to secure some of these people who still were skeptical of creating this new government entity. They, they wanted some assurances that their rights couldn't be infringed on. And one of the main principles universally agreed on at the time was that all powers not given are retained, okay? Retained to the states or the people of the states. And all the states at the time considered themselves sovereign entities. They were basically their own countries, okay? And they understood that they were not creating a permanent government that could never be abolished. Right, to do so would have uh, been to betray the whole fundamental principles in the Declaration of Independence. The people, through their legislatures, were delegating specific powers to a federal government, but if they no longer wished to delegate them, they could take them back. So in other words, because the people were sovereign, they had a right to abolish a government or withdraw their consent to its rule, just, they had, just as they had done from Great Britain. Okay, other people bring up the problem with the Supremacy Clause. Okay, but what does the Supremacy Clause actually say? Well, it basically just declares that all laws made in pursuance of the Constitution supersede state laws. So, what's really important there is in pursuance of the Constitution. Okay, so the general government has these enumerated powers, right? They're all written down and numbered in the Constitution, and the general government has supremacy only over those powers that were enumerated in the Constitution, and nothing else. Remember, everything else was supposed to be left to the states. And I guess I have to mention the, the whole necessary and proper clause thing again. So, and as I said before, there were some founders that were kind of worried about the wording of this, 
and they were worried that it would give Congress a right to pass any law that may facilitate the execution of their acts, and that was a uh, famous Patrick Henry that said that. And then James Madison said it only really gives, it only enables the government to execute its delegated powers. But James Madison didn't really win this argument. People were still worried that anything the rulers could come up with could be deemed necessary and proper, and unless there was some express declaration that everything not given was retained, then they were worried that Congress would eventually just grab more and more power again. And, and this is the birthplace of the whole Tenth Amendment, right? This is what the Tenth Amendment tells you. And I, I know I'm sounding like a, a broken record at this point, but basically, yeah, the Tenth Amendment says, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. As you might know that, I mean, this whole Virginia Ratifying Convention went on for a long time. I think it took like 25 days of debate back and forth between the delegates. I mean, James Madison had to keep fighting uh, about this whole necessary and proper clause thing, and he had to keep repeating that the necessary and proper clause only extended to the enumerated powers, and should Congress attempt to extend to any power not enumerated, it would not be warranted by the clause and that all the powers of the federal government had to be specifically laid out. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think about that they actually discussed this for 25 days. Can you imagine our politicians discussing anything for more than like an hour? I mean, besides all the backroom deals that go on that really uh, add up to what goes in the bills, and most of them probably don't even read the bills that they vote on, right? Can you imagine having a debate about something for 25 days? Okay, another thing I want to point out that I found interesting from my research on this was that you had the people that were kind of anti-Bill of Rights people. And they, they weren't against rights, but they just didn't think it was necessary, right? So you have these anti-Bill of Rights people. They pointed out that the Bill of Rights was unnecessary and superfluous because it was implied that the general government's powers were limited because they were numbered or enumerated, and therefore, the general government could have no power but what was expressly given to it. But eventually, the anti-Bill of Rights people gave in, and they said there was really no reason to exclude a Bill of Rights anyway. And if the general government perverted their powers, then the people could take them back. So, the Virginia Ratifying Convention left no ambiguities about the federal government or its role, it was to be limited, its power explicitly defined and pertaining chiefly to external matters such as war, and all the rest of the powers were to be reserved to the people in their respective states, where they could decide how much authority to, to delegate to their local governments. But still, even though the Constitution was ratified, George Nicholas gave a sort of prophetic declaration, okay? He gave a warning. He said, As long as the people remain virtuous and uncorrupted, will their representatives guard their interests and discharge their duty with fidelity and zeal? If, however, they become otherwise, well, then no government can possibly secure their freedom. So, basically, uh, what I want to leave you with now is that governments do not restrain themselves. 
Governments do not keep people free. The people must restrain their governments. The people must preserve their freedoms. Otherwise, you end up with a tyrannical government. So that's what they created at the time. But that is an ideal, I guess, situation, right? You had these 13 states. They just got together to form this general government to help with certain things, right? Just only things written in the Constitution. But now we've got to talk about reality, okay? And as early as George Washington's administration, the general government has started violating the Constitution. So it it doesn't carry the same weight as it used to 220 years ago, right? If politicians were violating the Constitution right away, what power does it still have to hold back the general government now, 200 years later? I mean, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's basically a dead document, okay? These politicians just do whatever they want now. And when your party's in power, you try to extend that power and control as much as possible, and then you get some revenge on your, the prior party's control and what they did while they were in power. And that's basically how our politicians have been operating for about 200 years. Okay, so now I want to kind of tie this all together with the whole states' rights things and these bailouts, right? So you have certain states like New York who have, sp- have spent ungodly amounts of money are asking for a bailout. So because of these government shutdowns, tax revenues to the states and mus- municipalities are collapsing. And they're having some significant trouble paying for their government programs and employees, And some states, again, like New York, are asking for a bailout from the federal government. They literally want the federal government to take money from the Treasury and go into even more debt and give it to the states to pay for all their excessive spending. Now, the Treasury doesn't really have any excess money sitting around for a rainy day. Governments don't save money. There's no Social Security trust fund. Governments spend every dollar that they take in or that they steal from the taxpayers. But over the last 10 years or so, they spend a trillion dollars more than what they steal from the people. And all this extra spending comes from the Fed, right? Comes from the central bank who just basically prints the money or types a number in onto a keyboard and gives it to the treasury. So aside from all the economic consequences of the central bank monetizing government spending, and I mean, that's like a whole separate podcast there, try to imagine what this sort of action would do to states' rights and state governments. Well, it would make the states even more dependent on the federal government than it already is, right? To meet their budgetary needs, the states would look less to taxing the citizens of that state and more to getting their coffers replenished from the feds. What that does is remove the power of the citizens to tell their state governments, no, no, we are taxed too much already, no new programs, no new spending, but you lose that check, right? You, you lose that bit of, I guess, check on the, the state government's power when the state turns to the federal government for money instead of turning to its taxing its citizens for money. Right? So states' rights, or the rights of the people in the states, would now be subject to direct command and control from Washington, D.C., 
as opposed to their local governments. The states would just become vassals of the federal government, and anytime the feds want a state to do something, they could just dangle money in front of the states and that would be it. Your local control over your local government is gone. So yeah, if this happens, if the feds bail out the states, then states' rights are gone, and any remaining powers in the Constitution limiting the power of the general government is gone too. This is why the election process in the country is always so heated. This is why it's so important to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It's not just about control over Washington, D.C. It's about control over the entire country. Okay? It's about control over everything. If you can hold money hostage from a state who wants it, then you can tell them what to do. So when Trump says something like, I'll allow the states to do such and such, he isn't kidding. He's not talking about sending in the troops or anything. He's just talking about the power of the purse. And he knows that you don't bite the hand that feeds you. I mean, that's human nature, right? So does Trump actually have the power to tell the states what to do? Well, not really, not according to the Constitution. But in reality, nowadays, with the Fed monetizing the debts of the entire general government, and if the Fed then decides to monetize the debt of the states, well, I guess then, yeah, practically, whoever's in charge of the federal government, right now it's Trump, can then tell the states what to do. Okay, guys, thank you for listening, and let's remember to keep those fires of liberty burning bright.